When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. We're recording on Thursday, January 16th, 2020. I'm Jeff O'Neill. Here with Rebecca Shinsky, we're coming to you from bookriot.com. You notice I didn't include the episode number in the read. Um, I'm not sure... Time is a flat circle. Episodes have no meaning when we have these bonus shows. Does anyone care? It's the next one in your feed. I'm not sure anyone cares, so I'm leaving it out for. I think okay. I think, for now, I think we'll try it. You just um, you're just feeling wild today. That's fine. Yeah, I I think in the older days of podcasting. Now we've been doing this almost six years now. I think coming mm-hmm. up in May, episode numbers were a bigger deal. But a lot of the podcasts I listen to, especially ones like this that are the talk shows, which tends to be the kind I gravitate towards. They've dispensed with episodes entirely. Like, there's the topic. If you've listened to it, you know it. And if you haven't, you haven't. You're not like, I don't know, collecting like your vinyl records of podcasts, <laughs> making sure of every issue, right? Like you have all the 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 Grateful Dead um, bootleg uh, albums from their tour in the summer of '66 or something like that. So I'll leave them out for now. I think all we right. could use them in the back end. But you know, you know, if you, if you like the podcast episode, you can shout at me at podcastatbookride.com. I'd, I'd like <laughs> to know. Speaking of shout outs. Yeah. Tell me about our first shout out. We have a new book riot, not you and me. We have a new (laughs) um, literary fiction podcast that just launched this week. It's called Novel Gazing. Mm. One of the better puns that we have produced here at the Good Ship Riot. Mm -hmm. Um, They are covering literary fiction, um, including literary fiction in translation, which is often overlooked um, and is one of the things that we care about a lot. And I think it is, you know, we hope it's on like the funnier, more fun and creative end of covering literary fiction. Um, doesn't take it too seriously. The title novel gazing kind of gives that away <laughs> with the reference to, you know, navel gazing that often happens in lit fic um, to awesome hosts with very different accents that are quite fun <laughs> to listen to if you get a chance. So if lit fic is up your alley, uh, fiction in translation, or if you're trying to read more of that this year. Um, I know we have some literary uh, fiction and translation items on the Read Harder Challenge, and that's just an area that a lot of people are trying to diversify their reading. That would be a good thing for you to check out. It's available on your podcatcher of choice. So wherever you're listening to this, you can just search search for novel gazing and find your way to it. And we are welcoming them to our podcast family. Uh, they took. They're wading in very gently by tackling the question of is Harry Potter literary. I doubt they'll get any feedback oh. about that particular <laughs> question. So nice, safe way ladies. to start. Those are brave ladies. <laughs> yeah. So be gentle. There. Welcome aboard. Um, also, let's see. You're going to hear this before the first bonus app of the new year comes out. Weirdly, though, we recorded it yesterday. <laughs> it's our winter <laughs> spring preview. We walk through thirteen of the buzziest books of the year. Uh, excuse me, of the of the winter and spring, April to today, basically January through April releases. I'm not sure that they're the books that, by acclamation, people who do this kind of stuff would pick, but they're the books we picked. Um, we had a good time 
looking at that there, I'm already regretting some of my choices, but such is, <laughs> such is life. Right. Yeah, I think we, we still need to revisit the buy, sell, hold decisions that we made about the books of the fall and, you know, just sort of settle the score, as it were. It's possible I may have revisited to see how I did, and you'll notice that I didn't bring it up, revisiting. Oh, mm-hmm. I'm not sure, you know, you can, you all out there can connect did you, the dots. Did you see how I did? Is this equally unflattering to both of us? Uh, let's do a sponsor, and then we'll get back into the show. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay. Uh, I do- dodged that one nicely. I- yeah, I, uh, I love your subtlety. It's one of my favorite <laughs> things about you, Jeff. <laughs> um, Publishers Weekly this week, Allison Hill, who's the incoming head of the American Booksellers Association, for those of you who may not be up on your publishing and book world acronym, that's the American Booksellers Association, and they basically are the trade organization for independent bookstores. A couple of interesting quotes, mostly anodyne stuff here in Publishers Weekly, which is kind of what you expect, but I want to give you two and just see if there's any, if there's any mustard on either of these quotes, because okay. I, I could read it a couple different ways. Okay, so here's one. I'm not sure that the typical Amazon customer is our customer. True or false, Rebecca Shinsky? Is that true or false? Ooh, I think that it needs to be false. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, it needs to be false. I believe that there is not a large Venn diagram of like the typical. Well, I guess define typical. I have questions now. There you go. That's where I was. I was going Um, on that too. Is are we talking about typical Amazon customer, as in like someone who uses Amazon for all of their things, including books? Um, because somebody who is sort of that much of like a heavy user of Amazon and is relying on it for the convenience, or maybe they live in a place where they don't have access to an independent bookstore, um, that person might not be the customer for an indie bookstore. But if you're talking about typical Amazon customer as just someone who's sort of like defaulted to buying their books from Amazon because it's cheap and that's the place. Like one of the things that independent bookstores I think should be striving to do is convert those people um, or at least convert a portion of their business and make a compelling case about what you're supporting when you spend money at Amazon versus what you're supporting when you spend money at an independent bookstore that stays in your community and many of which serve the literary community. And they're just, they're larger communities in other ways with um, various forms of charity and um philanthropical giving and just, you know, the things that literacy does. So Mm -hmm. I think it's both true and false, but it really depends on what typical means and that just writing off anyone who buys books at Amazon would not be, I think, would not be like the most effective way forward to strategize about the long-term success of independent bookstores. Um, That getting some of those people either back from Amazon or bringing them into indie bookstores for the first time could be um, very critical. 
Yeah, I think you're, you've, you've hit kind of the right thing just to re- – the, the language I had is I think she's right for the wrong reasons. Like she's mm. saying typical Amazon customer, probably the typical Amazon customer, buys zero books a year. We've seen all the stats about – like this is a regression right. to the mean situation. But of the Amazon customers who buy books, they are the same customer. So whether or not it's typical is sort of immaterial, it seems to me. It's like there is a subset of customers that are buying books from Amazon that given the right – incentive, motivation, information, access, whatever, mm-hmm. would switch or switch some portion of their book buying dollars there. Okay, here's another one. Uh, asked about Barnes & Noble and James Daunt taking over. Um, it infuses new energy into the ecosystem, and regardless of how he chooses to proceed, and regardless of whether we think of each other as partners or competitors, the reality is we're all in this together. True or False. I think that's true. Mm, Um, Well, mostly true. Again, I want want it to be true. Mm. It's so fun when I have to do my thinking out loud on the fly. Yeah. (laughs) This is what you get for asking me about to settle scores from the old preview. I break this out on the fly. Great. Um, I think that all on the same team is really a reference to Amazon versus everyone else. Um, That in a book ecosystem without Amazon or where Amazon plays less of a almost monopolistic role. Um, it could just be everyone's on the same team of books. Uh, but I think she's making reference there to like independent, it's good for independent bookstores for Barnes and Noble to continue to be a thing. Um, because that gives, you know, that bolsters everybody against the tide of Amazon just, taking over. I don't think a new person is just automatically new energy and fresh ideas. Um, And so far, we haven't seen like major changes from James Daunt in the way that the business of Barnes & Noble is put together, or at least major changes that have been made public um, that could continue to bolster Barnes & Noble's long-term survival in a way that then benefits Indy's long-term survival. This is like just the very politically correct and diplomatic thing that you're supposed to say when you are actually both competitors and on the same team. Like both of these things can be true. And she uses an or like an either or statement there, Mm -hmm. but I think it's a both and that they do compete for, you know, book buying dollars, but they do also need to work together um, against the tide of Amazon, but also just to support literary culture to make the world good for books and readers and acknowledging both of those things like um, that you can work against each other in some fashions and work together in others toward a bigger picture. Both of these things can be true. And I think she's kind of trying to say that, um, but it's, this is a super diplomatic statement that you make when you're the new head of a thing that competes with something else that has a new head of a thing. Also like James Daunt, if he's aware of who Alison Hill is, is probably saying the exact same thing. about mm, her. Yeah. Um, last thing here. Um, not a really direct quote, but um, a paraphrase. It sounds like the first thing Hill plans to do in her new job is to try to find out just how many ABA stores are truly profitable, how many are just getting by, and how many are at risk. How's that for um, goal one? What do you make of that first goal? Uh, that's a, I think, a well-targeted and good business goal <laughs> is to... Maybe overdue is my first thought. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um... That, yeah, I wonder, does the ABA not have that information 
already. Um, I can imagine that, mm. like, I do know that there's a, there's a strong culture of indie bookstore owners supporting and working with each other and sharing ideas and information and that, that the ABA is part of that. But I think among small businesses, there's also like a protectiveness and this is about like small businesses in many industries, but there's a protectiveness of like good ideas and creativity that's born out of like a, a scarcity kind mm. of mindset. And I feel like I've seen some of that happen in the bookstore world. I mean, I've seen it like in the yoga world that I'm also involved in. I think it's probably everywhere. Um, that I, I guess it wouldn't surprise me if the stores that are struggling are not talking about the way that they're struggling or how much they're struggling. Cause there's some shame stuff and it's not fun to admit to your peers that your business is not doing well. Um, so this seems like a good move for a leader to come in and say that she wants to get a handle on this. And hopefully that means normalizing conversation around it and sort of dragging things out into the light of day, not in a like, you know, laugh and point at people, mode of doing it, but in a like, let's look at how things are like really take a look at how these businesses are doing. And hopefully this, the thing that follows from that is what are the profitable stores doing that the stores that are struggling can learn from and can adapt on their own. And how can they, how can they create a tide that lifts all the boats? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, another interesting, um, feature in publishers weekly this week, shouts to the P-dub. Um, bringing the heat <laughs> this week. A new feature they're running where they're partnering with Bookstat, founded by Paul Abbasi. And what Bookstat tries to do is infer from available data and some proprietary data that they've partnered with publishers about to infer what the best selling ebooks and best selling audiobooks of the week are, and interestingly, the retail revenue. Ooh, based on those sales, not mm -hmm. just the unit count, the, the actual retail revenue, which is something we've long been interested in. And I'm fascinated to see where this leads, if we're going to get some new insight here. Already I've got a couple ones to throw out for you. They say, books, um, Paul Abbasi says, Bookstats figures vary by 1% to 4% from actual sales market-wide, which that's a very good margin of error. Like I would definitely live mm -hmm. with that. And if I somehow knew that was true, I would just sort of use these without much of a caveat, but how do you know that right. um, I think is tough. But anyway, for the moment at least, let's, let's play with the idea that these are representative in, in gross terms at least. Um, Crawdads uh, takes the triple crown, being the best-selling ebook. And best-selling here now means something a little bit different. I have to think of it two ways. Is it the number of units or the gross revenue? Well, it just so happens that Crawdads both. was such a monster um, and monstrous that it is. It sold both the most units and had the highest revenue in all three categories. That be, the categories being ebooks, audiobooks, and print books. Um, did you see the chart? Is that uh, yeah? That chart I'm looking at the chart yeah, right okay. now. Mm -hmm. One thing that jumped out to me becoming the second best-selling audiobook of the year. Not surprising. We were told it was the second best-selling uh, book. Um, of the year, but only the 18th best-selling ebook. Mm. And the reason is Amazon's own titles are numbers yeah. 6, 7, 8, 9, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19. Yeah, it's what, 11 of the top 20 yeah. are and, published by Amazon Publishing. And the yeah. deal there is, is those titles are like a few bucks a pop. So they're they're not actually ranked by revenue here, they're ranked by unit sales. So Becoming is number 18, 
with 358,000 units sold. So that makes it 18th in terms of unit volume. But if you were to rank order this accord to revenue, it would be number three. Mm-hmm. Right. So just behind Crawdads of the Handmaid's Tale, interestingly, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, um, still getting those uh, galleons over there. And then um, actually, it'd be ahead of Harry Potter, but behind Educated, which sold 627,000 copies in ebook um, for a gross revenue of about $8 million. Anything else? That, that one really jumped out to me. Not, not the same. You might think that since Audible is an Amazon property, that you might see similar distribution curves or a similar cadre of a few dollar audiobooks from Amazon titles in the middle here, but there's zero or yeah, one. I, there's one. There's one. Number um, 19, Born a Crime, but it sold at a traditional market price, interestingly. Yeah, I think that there's a real gap or just a real difference in what's going on with Amazon publishing in terms of text, like yeah. whether it's print or ebook text, and they do really focus on digital books and what's going on with Audible originals or Audible exclusives. And for them, like what they're what's happening with most of these Amazon publishing titles are like these are titles I don't recognize any of these zero. Any Zero of these, of them. like the 11 books that were put out by Amazon Publishing that are in the top 20 best-selling ebooks of the year. I don't know any of them. I think these are either um, self-published authors or authors that Amazon has picked up and put into their Amazon Publishing line and that they're marketing through probably the Kindle Unlimited service and through the, you know ads that show up on people's Kindles and in their Kindle apps when they're reading on phones and other devices. And then those you know emails that people get about like, here's a book you can read for $1.99. Mm-hmm. And that's reflected as you were saying, in the fact that the number of units is really high for most of those, but the the overall retail revenue for those titles is low relative to all the other titles on these lists. Um, all yeah. of them are in like the one to one point nine million dollar range, um, which is a lot, but much lower than the other titles here. And Amazon's not doing the same kind of thing, or they haven't had the same kind of success with the Audible exclusives. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Like the barrier to entry for an audiobook experience feels a lot higher to me than the risk you're taking when you buy a $1.99 ebook mm-hmm. um, of like, well, we'll see how this goes. Um, you can, you know, read 50 pages of that. And it's like, well, even if I hated it, I'm only out $1.99. Um, Audible credits are more expensive if you're straight up buying the ebook on Audible without or, or having to pay individual credits. That's even more expensive and that's just harder to opt into like a totally unknown name. And I think, I think it's wise of audible to not be pushing those in that same way. Um, I also don't think that they're doing audiobook versions of a lot of these titles for Amazon uh, publishing. Yeah. So audible exclusives are like big authors that audible gets, you know, Hey, we're going to produce the audiobook for and be the only place that you can get it. Um, or they do these audible originals that are shorter, but there's not really an audiobook version of self publishing that Amazon can, you know, like lift authors out of and make them best sellers by making it really cheap to try the books. Yeah, even, and this is certainly true, is that the next step in producing an audiobook after you have a self-published title is is quite onerous to do like a 10-hour audiobook and edit it and get a narrator to do mm-hmm. it. And um, now that's baked in if you're going to sell a whole bunch of copies, but it might not be baked in if you're going to sell 3,000 copies at six bucks, you know, as a right. self-publisher, very small author. The other thing that, that jumped out to me here is the gross revenue of the top 20 ebook to audiobook. Audiobook mm-hmm. crushes it. Just yeah. because the prices are so high yep. and the units are about the same, you know, they, it, it 
trails off a little bit towards the best-selling, the, the end of the 20. You know, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban is number 20, 279,000 279, units for $6 million. Blue Moon, the number 20, it's a lead child title from Penguin Random House and eBooks, 338,000 copies, so 50,000 copies more, but $1.5 million less in gross revenue, and that's a PRH title. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's we, we don't know yet... I think the full story of what audiobooks mean to the bottom line of of the big five and traditional publishers. We've been seeing market share in terms of unit sales to this point. This is telling to me that actually the numbers are way bigger when mm-hmm. you talk about revenue. When it's actually oh, yeah. about revenue, it's even it's even more acute than we think, which makes sense. But mm-hmm. I just we haven't seen it put out this way. Yeah, this is really interesting to see, and it's interesting to me that the best selling audiobooks list much more closely reflects the list that we were looking at, yeah. I think, last week of just best selling print titles um, over the year. And that's largely because, as we were just discussing, there are not all these Amazon publishing titles, but you've got Crawdads Becoming, Educated, Girl Wash Your Face, and Girl Stop Apologizing. Um, you have the you know F bomb related self help <laughs> books. Um, you have Malcolm Gladwell. You've got some Brene Brown and Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Like the um, popularity of self help and like management titles in audiobook, yeah. I think, is a really interesting thing. Um, and just that sort of usual mix of things, but also where many of these are backlist, as we were talking about last week, many of these are not books that were brand new um, in 2019. So it's interesting to see how that trend that we see in print has carried over to audio as well, that um, most of the big books in a year are not actually the books that were brand new. Right. Now, the other split that that is, I think, confirmed here that we knew anecdotally, maybe through back channels and other places that Nonfiction on audio is a huge deal. Like 14 mm-hmm. of the 20 titles here on the audio bestsellers are nonfiction compared to like three or four among ebooks. And some of that is self published self help is not much of a thing. I mean, right. for better or worse, like it just hasn't broken through in the way that a lot of genre writing has. Uh, an ebook form. So, anything else from that? I I, I look forward to this with uh, great interest to see how this shakes out. Yeah, I'm excited to see this. I mean, I think you know the sort of overall like omnibus publishing stats is a thing that we've yearned for and a lot of people in publishing have yearned for for a long time and transparency from publishers about these things transparency from amazon um about them is really hard to get i'm glad that someone is approaching getting there this and this is definitely a margin of error that i can live with this is i think the best attempt at an aggregate that we've seen um if we can talk about even just the selection process for our fall preview show a grand total of zero of the books that we picked to talk about appear on either of these lists. So there we go. Great job by us uh, in picking. In all fairness, there's like zero front list, but that's right. maybe, yeah. a, maybe a separate thing. All right, let's do a sponsor and um, get back into newsy news. All right, where do you want to go? Where well, I would like to hop in our time machine and like go back to mid-2018 so we can buy, sell, hold about where the products are. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, what are you going to do? Let's do. Um, I'd like to go to some happy mm. follow up. We don't get to do this um, nearly as often as we would, as we wish that we could. Um, but before the holidays, we talked about um, a, a movement, a protest, call it whatever you want, um, in Loudoun County, Virginia, which is one of the DC suburbs um, where there were parents that wanted to remove two books that have LGBTQ characters from elementary schools, and the. Um, 
officials related to that decision voted against that movement earlier this week. So those two books that some of the parents wanted removed will remain on school shelves in those Mm -hmm. elementary schools. It was um, no surprise, a group of conservative parents that launched a faith-driven campaign um, to banish LGBTQ lit from elementary school libraries and classrooms. They had some early success. School officials had taken about five books with those themes out of schools after parents complained, um, according to a school district spokesman. Um, The titles include Hurricane Child, which details a romance between two girls, and The Pants Project, which features a trans boy those have been redistributed to middle and high schools um, but wednesday evening so just yesterday, yesterday as we're recording this a three-person subcommittee of the loudon school board voted to prevent the removal of prince and knight and heather has two mommies that decision will stand for at least a year um, so good job to you three-person mm. subcommittee in loudon county schools um, for keeping these books on shelves. Um, the uh, person named John Beatty argued before the committee that the book has a homosexual relationship and he knows that some parents don't agree with that. Um, I love the understatedness of this line in the Washington Post. His argument failed to persuade fellow board members and he was the only person to vote in favor of eliminating both books. You so, failed. failed. Your, uh, your efforts have failed. You're out on that limb alone. Mm. Uh, great job to Equality Loudoun, and, which is an LGBTQ advocacy group, and to these um, subcommittee members of the Loudoun School Board. Happy to see it go this way for at least a year. I'm ex- just really thrilled to, to hear that. Um, some Very audible audible follow-up, uh, speaking of follow-up, the case, the complaint, the tension over Audible providing real-time captions to audiobooks um, that users are buying, consuming through the Audible app, that the publishing community writ large said, you know, maybe not so much with that. Um, apparently, they've reached some sort of a deal. We do not know what the deal is. The feature never launched to the public in a, in a broad way. I think it was only testing in a beta situation. Mm-hmm. So we really don't know what the outcome is going to be, whether there will be captions or not, whether it's going to be an add-on, whether whatever it's going to be. But they have reached some sort of deal. It will come out. At some point, uh, presumably what happened, I I realize in looking at this, I don't have a good guess about what's going to come out of this. I, do you, are there either. captions mm-hmm. or no captions? Well, if you have to I, bet right now, you get even odds on both. What are you betting Extremely sh- shruggy, man. Yeah. I'm going to bet. If I have to bet, I'm going to bet there are captions just because I have – um, a lot of faith in the persistence and creativity of Amazon's lawyer. Right. No. Do you think it's going to be an add-on, like an optional thing, or you're just going to get it? Ooh, I don't know. Okay. I think there will be captions. I'm guessing it's going to be real-time only. Like, you can't go back and look at a transcript. Like, mm. that's going to be mm-hmm. the way around it. It, it. Nothing else really makes sense to me, frankly, yeah. that you couldn't do captions, even though you're listening to the thing. That doesn't make sense. But also having a readable transcript, which is essentially a free audio uh, ebook version, that doesn't seem to make any sense to me either. So I'm guessing on this, this middle way, which is an ephemeral, ephemeral um, you got to watch to watch to read. Mm-hmm. Um, another, that's a good guess. Another audible thing, this is a um, reader follow-up about limits on returns. I, um, I oh. clutched my pearls a little bit last time about people <laughs> abusing the audible, Audible's generous return the credit and use it on something else policy. I said at that point um, that it seemed like it was virtually unlimited. 
got a report that is in fact not unlimited. There are some hazy guidelines. Someone knows someone, and they don't want me to mention anybody's name, which is fine. That routinely returns them not not to sort of abuse it and use it like a personal library with infinity infinity credits, but because they're very picky about narrators. So mm-hmm. if they get twenty minutes into it, they'll return it. They'll return it. They'll find something they like. Apparently, they do get throttled and have to do something else besides just hit the button. Which that use case to me actually makes sense. Like I guess my in thinking about it after the fact, I kind of said it on the fly last time about being scolding people for doing this. I think if you use a credit, use up a credit for something you listen to mostly. If you listen to most of the audiobook, don't return it. But yeah. if you do listen to a few minutes and you're you're out on it, that seems to me a reasonable approximation of what you can do in a bookstore, which is pick yeah. up the book and read it. So that yeah, that's where I, I think- am right now. I think we need to call in Nancy Pearl and get the audiobook uh, version of the 50-page rule. Yeah, right. Where if you're, what is it, if you're under the age of 50, you read the first 50 pages of a book and you decide if you're in or out. And if you're over the age of 50, you take, like, oh. If you're some like 50, other number of some pages. Some other <laughs> number. I think it's like 100 minus your age. And right. you read that number of, of pages. Um, so if you were 57, you would read 43 Right. pages of a book and and then you can bounce. Um, I think we need that for audiobooks for like, what's the rule? And you would think that Audible can certainly tell how far into an audiobook you, you are. So. You Maybe it's so. a percentage thing, like you get 20% to make up your mind. Um, and you could build now I'm into this concept, I think they could even build features around it where you could get a like, you could maybe toggle a switch that would if you were a person who is picky about narrators or who does frequently bounce out of an audiobook after, say, 20%, maybe you could get a pop-up notification that would be mm. like, hey, you're approaching your 20% mark. So if you're going to make a decision about this book, make it now. That's interesting. You can listen to samples for most of the books on Audible. So you can do a little kind of a smell test, right? Just get a feel for it. Yeah. They're not very long. You're not going to get 15 or 20 minutes in. I think most of them are three to five minutes. But from from some of that, you can eliminate like a real mistake of a, of a narrator for you. Mm-hmm. If it really is grading, you can yeah. jettison that thing pretty quick. But yeah, I you know I think this is one of those things. If you feel like you're getting away with something, you're probably doing it wrong. That, that's pretty mm-hmm. good life advice in general. Um, and if you feel like you're getting away with something, don't do that anymore. But if you feel like you're making an honest effort to pay for the things you're listening to mostly all the way, then pay for those things. Anyway, I, I, addendum to my um, scold. Uh, from from before. <laughs> Addendum to the scold is definitely the show title. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. News, news. Well, while we're on digital checkouts, um, I think this is not a standalone story about record number of library systems achieve 1 million plus digital book checkouts in 2019. I wonder what other story we've talked about that could be related to a surge in digital collection usage. I can't really think. It'll come to me later. I'll have to think about it here a, a little bit <laughs> does it, more. Does it have to do with ebook pricing for libraries? Uh, well, you know, it could be something about publisher. I'm not sure. Uh, 73 public library systems from the U.S., Canada, Singapore, Australia, and New Zealand. Uh, Singapore uh, shouts a, a big glow up for Singapore to be included in that list. Uh, each enabled readers to borrow over 1 million ebooks and audiobooks from their catalogs in 2019. A 27% increase for children's audiobooks and young adult digital book titles. That got me wondering if Macmillan's move to do some throttling wasn't about sort of aggregate usage, but some of the more lucrative parts Mm -hmm. of the market actually finding some uptake digitally. Because as we saw when we talked about the best-selling books of the year, I think last week, a lot of those are children's books. And if you're borrowing... uh, 
snowy day, which people are, or you're borrowing other places you go, rather than buying it, uh, that takes more money away from publishers than they were anticipating. I'm trying to be as value neutral about mm-hmm. it right now because I don't want to do this again today. But <laughs> it, it's, not, it's, it's not a surprise that this news is coming out. It's not a surprise from what I see people doing and what hear people talking about. People are using these more and more. We know that libraries are spending more and more on their digital collections, so they're being used more and more. The front ends are good. Libby's great. Overdrive's getting good. And usage is up. And that's yep. good on the whole. Mm-hmm. Um, so anything else here, Rebecca? That- I was just going to give you some shouts for what I assume is your contribution to the Multnomah County Library's presence. <laughs> I was going to say, I think if it number weren't for the Black here. O'Neill household, they'd be like down at 15 rather than uh, number seven. In the- uh, maybe just interesting for our listeners to hear the top oh, yeah, ten ebook and digital audiobook circulating systems for 2019. The Toronto Public Library was number one. The LA Public Library is number two. Um, King County in Washington State. Then the New York Public Library. Then the National National Library Board of Singapore, Seattle Public Library 6. We've got a Book Riot office in the Multnomah yeah, County we Library. Do. So I actually think it's you and the rest of the Riot <laughs> yeah. crew. Me and Sharif and Vanessa and Hannah are hitting that thing, hitting <laughs> yeah. the servers hard here in Multnomah Number County. Number seven, uh, Hennepin County Library in Minnesota, the Public Library of Cincinnati and Hamilton County in Ohio. And then number 10 is the Mid-Continent Public Library in Missouri. And I'm not sure where in Missouri that is, given my relative familiarity with the Midwest. Um, but interesting to see that it's a, it's a, you know, very West Coast and Blue State. Midwestern, yeah, spread, blue states. And then you've got the New York Public Library holding down the East Surprise Coast. Surprised not to see uh, BPL, Boston mm-hmm. Public Library, yeah. San Francisco Public Library. I thought this would be mostly a coastal elite sort of city situation. Shouts to Minneapolis, St. Paul, I think. Shouts to Cincinnati. Uh, shouts, mm-hmm. I'm get, Mid-Continent Public Library, I'm guessing it is the SLU, your old stomping grounds. I don't think that's oh. a Kansas City, Missouri that's part not of. the Yeah, that's not the Kansas City one. Mid-Continent, I guess, could also be like around Columbia, where the University of Missouri There's is. There's no way the Columbia... I mean, I mean you're right. I it know. could be. I can't be Columbia, Missouri. And that's just because the word... <laughs> I'm not saying it because we're Jayhawks either. Like a call, It has to be St. Louis. Uh, but we'll, we'll look it up after the fact. Would that we could live Google and, and do it there. Um, yeah, there you go. Oh, you know what it is? It's um, the Mid-Continent Public Library is like around Independence and Liberty in Parkville, Missouri, which are Missouri side far suburbs of Kansas City. Really? Wow. Mm -hmm. That is a huge effort from them, I would think. Yeah. Relative to population. That's good, um, relatively affluent suburban sprawl. Hmm. Interesting. Toronto Public Library being number one. I would I would I don't know enough. I just assume now that Canadians get more for public services writ large, but on like a on a citizen by citizen level, like how what's the spending on libraries on for these um jurisdictions? Like does it track pretty evenly with mm, acquisitions question. and collections or do we see, really see some um uh, some of these districts outperforming what you would expect just from the spend that their their communities spend on their library systems. Uh I want to talk TV. Okay. I'm, I'm having you bet on things today. I don't know why. I like this gimmick because <laughs> it makes you choose a side. It makes me choose a side. So news this week that it looks like the Game of Thrones spinoff, House of Dragons-ish, you know, it's about the Targaryens, a prequel to the Game of Thrones timeline that was in the, the movies, is coming out in 2022, looks like the okay. timeline. Will we have a new George R. R. Martin book by the time that... <laughs> 
TV show comes out in 2022. <laughs> you laugh, you laugh, but it's not a terrible over-under. Two years? It's not a terrible over-under. It's actually, I'm having some internal mm-hmm. debate about this. Man, I think if we don't have it by 2022, we're not getting it. It does feel that way. It does so, feel that way. That is my non. So the real referendum is: Do you think it's coming at all? Then that's what you just said. You're get, you, that's the differential well, to do. I'm. I do believe it's coming. He has been working on it for a long time. But if we don't see it by 2022 when this series comes out, then I will modify. Like if by mid 2021 we don't have an <laughs> announcement. Uh, like in the next 18 months, if we don't have an announcement about when the next Game of Thrones book is coming, I will flip my switch over to it's we're not getting it. Oh, really? If we're a year and a half from now and we still don't have the book, you think it'll be less likely the book comes? Yeah. yeah. You could tell Rebecca's never done any real sports betting. That's not how betting works. You don't get to decide <laughs> You don't get to decide three quarters into the football game. Oh, this team's up by three touchdowns. I think I'm switching my bet to them. They Look, seem Jeff, like they're going to we... win. Make the rules here. Yeah. I just think the longer that we go without this book, the less likely it is yeah. that we're getting it. I, I would put, I don't know if I've had too much coffee or what this morning. You, you're, you're pretty awake today. I, I would put money on it coming out before okay. this comes out. And maybe it's just I, in my heart of hearts, I just can't believe it's done. He, he's talking about it. He's doing stuff. He's not dead. Like I just feel like it has to come mm. out at some point. And I agree with you that if it's not coming out by then, the, the it really goes down from there. Yeah. He's like, "There's I'm, a prequel. I didn't write any of this crap. Like, I didn't right. write this stuff. Like, what does it even matter anymore?" Yeah, I'm really curious, and I would bet that there's like some real pressure on him yeah. from the HBO folks, and obviously from his publisher to get this thing done. Because also, 2022 is a long time from now in yep. terms of like pop culture memory and maintaining interest. Mm. And Game of Thrones ended already several months ago, so like, I think that somebody's I hope that somebody at HBO is sitting there wondering, like, is there really going to still be an audience that's excited for this in two years? And and I don't that, like, know. I, I you honestly know, and, don't know. Right. Like, it's, it's just a know. long time to maintain interest in a television series or in a spinoff of a series like Better Call Saul came pretty quickly after Breaking Bad, and that's and it's not nearly as big as Breaking Bad was. And this is the only spinoff that I even have available to me in my like think my like mental catalog of TV shows that are currently running, and um, that would even be any kind of analog. And I just think like I mean maybe I have no experience. I haven't read Game of Thrones. I haven't watched it. I could be just vastly underestimating people's thirst for continued stories in this world but this feels like it's a long way off and if there's not a new book between now and then to remind people that they care about this world um then i'm concerned about what kind of viewership hbo is going to actually have for it Uh, i know we're i think we're gonna get a again it's it's more recent but i feel like this hunger games prequel book coming out in april may might be a bit of a harbinger mm-hmm. because we've had some time. We got a full, you know, movie cycle. We got a full book cycle. People willing to come back. Now the testaments sold well. It was, and it's like thirty years later. That may be indicative somehow. Yeah, and I'm I just mean, not sure here. Um, I think though, a Game of Thrones, a... the first book, number nine on the audiobooks. 
units last year. Yeah. That's a lot of an... hours of people listening to Game Yeah, of that's true. That is a lot of hours. There's an asterisk in my mind next to the Testament sold well because uh. it came out of the gate hot and then it has disappeared. Like I was traveling this past weekend and I texted you like when I was traveling over the like in the late fall, I saw giant displays of the Testaments in all the airport bookstores. I didn't even see a single copy of the Testaments for sale in a Hudson News this past weekend. And I was in Atlanta, my second home, <laughs> the Atlanta <laughs> Delta Terminal. Um, and you were I think when I sent you that you responded that it's not on any like you know it's yeah not on any i screwed the bestseller that up list. i screwed that up it's number 16 oh. on hardcover front list fiction this week i just <sighs> looked right over okay. outselling the starless sea which i wouldn't have bet oh. like, i'm hmm. telling you i'm telling you rjs we took we took it was a rough look for us for our preview <laughs> maybe we should do it just for just just for fun just to let people <laughs> oh, know we really don't know what we're talking about we really don't <laughs> When it comes to book sales and, and many other things, but wow. <laughs> and yet here we are six years in. And yet here we are podcast. talking to people who know less than we do. <laughs> that's the trick, right? Yeah. That's um, okay. The trick. So it's number 16. I didn't really see it anywhere. I saw yeah. one person reading it in the airport. I do think the long term story of the Testaments is still that it's not going to be. A big deal. And I and it was riding on the success, the very recent success of the TV show and recent resurgence of The Handmaid's Tale as a thing. Um, that, and as a, like as a TV show and as a book, I'm really curious. I think you're right that how the new Suzanne Collins Hunger Games book performs will be an interesting data point into guessing how new entries into Game of Thrones are going to do, especially these spinoffs, like finishing the series. This like the next Game of Thrones book, if it ever does come out, is going to sell very well. Yep. People want to finish that story. But I think the spinoff thing is a really interesting question and when we do our summer book preview and mm. we make our when we place our bets about the songbirds and snakes book i think that i will i think i'm anticipating coming out of the gate the same way there that it will sell really well at first and then taper off i find myself again as you know i don't like to read books from series that are not yet complete though if you told me that the new game of thrones book was coming out tomorrow I think I would start the series. I, I've, I've watched all the TV shows, but I am interested. This idea of the fork in the narrative road mm -hmm. has got me really jazzed as an English nerd, right? Like this kind of situation we haven't really seen before, where you get two canonical paths for the story. I'm super into seeing how, if, what is different in the book um, that in the movie. I'm just kind of wanting to go back to that world. And I was a late convert to Westeros, so... I'm not sure if that means anything, but I do find myself saying, not just thinking it will come out, but wanting it come out, which is not mm. something I would have said. Yeah, I'm a surprised year to before. hear that. That's yeah. interesting. Uh, we'll get more into this next next bonus episode, which is after the one that's not out yet. Boy, I need to get. I need to work on the teases here. <laughs> I don't even know where I'm. We're going to do a, a, a wrap up episode on the Watchmen, uh, just Watchmen adaptation that. Did its um, eight episode run on HBO. We looked. We talked together about the first episode in the fall. Both you and I have continued on. You are going to finish it. I already finished it. I'm not spoiling anything. Say I was absolutely enthralled. I think there's a lot of meat on the bone to talk about. But and I don't want to spoil anything here. There's not a cliffhanger. There's not an obvious way for the series to go once you're done with these eight episodes. Lindelhoff has said. Damon Lindelhoff, the showrunner, has said he meant it to be kind of a complete meal, that it wasn't mm -hmm. designed to be an ongoing or even multiple limited se uh, season series. 
that his mind is like, assume it's going to be done right it that way. I think it works wonderfully well that way. I find myself wanting more, but also not wanting more, which is like just the right amount of full. Like, if it's just what it is, it might be my favorite TV show of all time just because of the concision. Just and this eight, would be bam. Yeah, that would be that would be great. And I think a real um a smart move yeah. on the trajectory for Damon Lindelof mm. from the way that Lost like sort of dragged on and ended too late and not well. Um The Leftovers, he did two seasons and that was it. I thought it was perfect. That last yeah. season of The Leftovers, it's one of the best seasons of TV I've ever watched. And I've also been I'm on the I'm ready to start episode seven, which I've been holding on to to like make sure I can really sit down with mm. it because you told me afterwards that you thought it was one of the best hours of TV you've ever seen. Six and seven, man, together. Six and seven, yeah. dynamite. So I am just preparing myself for that, but I've been blown away so far and just I'm really looking forward to talking about that. That'll be fun. Yeah, I, it's kind of one of those situations where I kind of hope he decides for me that I'm not going to watch another. Like, don't bring mm-hmm. the chips into the house is my, my strategy for not eating a whole bag of chips. Just keep it out of the house. I'm fine. Just keep it out of the house. I'm fine as it is. If the season two comes in, I'm going to watch it. And I just can't imagine it being anything less than a come down off season one. I'd love to be wrong, but I just it's hard to see how it'd go from there. So that's, that's a big um, promo for our upcoming uh, Adaptation Nation episode. For Watchmen. Let's do one more sponsor, do a couple uh, little follow ups or smaller news stories, and we'll be done for the day. All right, take us home. Pick one more. All right, we got a hero of the week. Yeah, I hoped you would do that. First hero of 2020. Um, speaking of St. Louis, this is about Sidney Keys. He is a 13-year-old from St. Louis who created a subscription box called Books and Bros. Um, it's aimed at showing young African-American boys that they can be anything they want. He said he was inspired to create the service when he was inside a bookstore called I See Me, which is the only bookstore in the St. Louis area that caters specifically to the black community. So if you're listening to this and you are in or near St. Louis, drop by I see me and that's S E E like visually see, um, drop by and buy some books, throw some support their way or send some friends. Um, and he said, when I was looking through books, I saw a boy who looks like me on the cover of money. So I was like, that boy looks like me and I love money. Let's read that book. Seeing someone that looked like him on the cover of the book made him feel like he could do anything he wants. And it inspired him to make others want to feel that way. So good job to you, Sydney keys. This is how representation matters. This is an illustration in real time about how representation matters and can change the lives and the futures that kids can imagine for themselves because of being able to see people who look like them represented in books and other forms of media. Mm. And that he took the power of that experience and created a business to expose other young black boys to books that can inspire them is awesome. If you want to sign up for Books and Bros or purchase it for a child in your life, you can do so. We'll have a link to the news story here in the show notes. And there's a link inside that for details about books and bros. Our hats are off to you, Sydney Keys. May your efforts succeed. May your efforts succeed. That's our show for this week. You can find links to all the stories we talked about at bookriot.com slash listen. There you can also browse all the other podcasts that we host here on the Good Ship Book Ride, including Novel Gazing, our new literary fiction podcast. But we've got podcasts about science fiction and fantasy, mystery and thrillers, um, nonfiction, Get Booked, which is a recommendation, recommendation show, all the books, which every week highlights the best, most interesting, and fun new books coming out that week. Something for everyone there. That's bookriot.com slash listen. Shoot us an email. 
podcast at podcast podcast at podcast dot podcast. <laughs> That's our email address. Podcast at uh, bookriot.com for feedback about this or anything else we've said that you can add to in a constructive way. Love to hear it. Rebecca, we'll talk to you next week. Yeah, have a good one. 